the green lights come in many forms. And, and, and sometimes they come in celestial suggestions that are handed you via a story from a wet dream. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Waterstones podcast. I'm Will Rycroft and in this episode we get to speak to our first Oscar winner as we welcome Matthew McConaughey to the podcast. Dazed and Confused, A Time to Kill, Amistad, Mud, Magic Mike, Interstellar, The Wolf of Wall Street and his Academy Award winning performance in Dallas Buyers Club. However you like your McConaughey, you certainly know when you've seen one of his performances. With his memoir Greenlights, we get to learn so much more of the mindset of the man behind those roles as he shares frank and funny observations on family, filmmaking and finding your path in life. Just a few of the things we spoke about across the ocean that separates us. Well, Matthew, thank you for joining me on the Waterstones podcast, uh, first of all. Um, it was great fun reading your, I was going to say memoir. It's not quite as simple as a memoir, Greenlights, but I loved the idea, first of all, of you at the age of... 50, gathering together these journals that you've been writing since about the age of 15. Is that right? That's correct. And sort of taking yourself away to to read them and almost to reacquaint yourself with yourself. Mm-hmm. I suppose I wanted to ask, first of all, why did you start writing that first journal when you were 15? Was there a particular spur to start writing in the first place? Mm, you know, I think when I was 15, I started writing in my own journal when things were not going well, when I was trying to figure out life. I mean, I was always, even at a young age, <laughs> um, interested in the existential questions, the how, what, when, why, some wheres of life. Um, and I think if I look back at the journals early on, I was writing in it because I was trying to, I was maybe a little lost trying to figure out who I was, um, like everyone goes through. And then it was much later on that I realized, I think it was in my early 20s, that I noticed, oh, you're only going to your diary to write when things are not going well. Hmm. Actually, and I looked up, and I was like, oh, you haven't written it in a month because things are going really well. And this was hmm. in my early 20s. And I was like, you, that, you should go write when things are going well. So instead of dissecting only, only failures and, 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 and perceived crisis, let's write, write down things when they're going well so we can dissect when things are going well, dissect success. It was really interesting sort of seeing with some of the things that you've shared, there are sort of several formative experiences. And and one quite early on in your life with these journals was this year long exchange that you did to Australia. Yeah. And you mentioned it was sort of like the first time that you'd been introspective, that you'd actually sort of looked at yourself as yourself and thought about what you were going through. And did that mean that when you came back from that trip, you felt far better equipped to then start thinking about careers and things like that? Well, hmm. I could say that maybe in hindsight. I mean, I, I <laughs> fully know and believe that I would not be sitting here and have had the life I've had career-wise, for sure, if I didn't have that year of introspection, forced introspection that I had mm. in Australia. Now, mind you, coming back and entering the, the American university system, University of Texas, the re-entry uh, was much harder. It took two years for... for, for I mean, I, I, I was really felt out of place when I came mm. back. But part of that was because <laughs> I had spent that year away um, really working on who I was. But for survival, I was not thriving in that year in Australia. I was, <laughs> I was, I was going to the diary to, to survive and try and keep my, my own sanity. Um, so coming back, um, I, was a changed, I was a changed young man. I was not the man who left the year before. And the 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 person I was before I went to Australia would have come back into the University of Texas system 
and would have just fit right in affluently and rolled right through it and got along and it would have been easy. The mm. person came back from Australia was not a young, innocent American boy anymore um, and was not like all of his fraternity brothers <laughs> at the <laughs> university. was not, well, you know, I was, I was uh, much more independent and that wasn't always easy. That went, I went against the grain quite a bit more than I would have. I mean, I suppose there's this real sense that you, you started to know a bit more about what you wanted. And part of that, I suppose, your decision to stop pursuing any career in law and to switch to film school. There's this great line that your dad delivered to you when you told him what was probably quite big news and you were worried about what his response would be. And he said, I, I mean, it'll sound terrible in my accent, but he said, please do it. I want to hear yours. I know. <laughs> he told you, he just said, don't half ass it. Did you take that? Sort of is that a mantra, I suppose, that you've applied to almost anything you've done in your career? Well, it sure has stuck with me. I mean, look, there there's a lot of things that come with that. Uh as far as as, as far as work ethic, as far as persistence, uh as far as committing to something, uh, which which I have done in things that are important in my life, relationships and career wise. That mm-hmm. line that he told me, that was between my sophomore and junior year in college. So I had been I'd just come back from Australia two years prior. I've been in university, headed towards law school, which I thought that was always what I wanted to do. And I'd always thought that's what I wanted to do. And suddenly it it occurred to me that, oh my gosh, if I go to law school, I've got to graduate now. I go to school for three, four more years after this. I won't be be able to have an imprint or put my mark in life in whatever manner I will till I'm in my thirties. And I don't really want to spend my twenties only getting educated. I want to go get some experience. And I'd been writing a lot, um, as you know. So I'd been writing short stories. I'd been writing about myself, how, why, you know, I, I was in the movie theater. This is stuff I would write. I was in the movie theater. I really thought, I laughed out loud at this part in the movie, but nobody else in the theater laughed. And it was a tap crowd. <laughs> and then the joke that everybody in the theater laughed at, I didn't even giggle. I didn't think it was funny. Or, you know, I cry. I didn't cry at, at, at the death of so and so, but geez, I'm weeping at the because I, when I heard the story of the birth of so and so, or mm-hmm. different stories were, were. I was reacting differently than my peers to things. What made me happy? What made me mad? What had me made me sad? Um, I, was was different than my peers, and I was and I was accounting for that in my diaries. So I'd started writing short stories, and I had a friend who had read them and gave me some uh, reassurance that he thought they were pretty good. And he thought, you know, he was actually a guy who was in film school. He, he gave me the urge to go try to go to film school, which I thought was just too much of an avant-garde sort of even, you know, odd European uh, play thing to do because I had been raised in a, in a blue collar. You work your way up a company ladder. Hmm. Well, I got the courage to say, I want to go to film school. And to call my father that night was a daunting task, but I knew I had to do it because I thought he was going to go, you want to what? <laughs> I call him and I picked out a perfect time. I thought I said 730 on Tuesday night. He'll be home from work. He'll have already had a great meal that mom cooked him. He'll, he'll be having a beer on the couch. So I call him 736 p.m. on that Tuesday night. I said, Dad, I don't want to go to film school anymore. I want to go to I don't want to go to law school anymore. I want to go to film school. And there's a there's a pause on the other end of the line and I'm sweating. And all of a sudden I hear this. Well, is that what you want to do, son? And I said, yes, sir. There's another pause. And then I heard these three words that were not just an approval. They were an affirmation. They were a, a kick in the backside to say, 
you have more than the privilege to do this. You have more than my blessing. You have the freedom and responsibility to do this. And those three words were, don't half-ass it. <laughs> it's great. It was a launch pad for me. You know, I had my father's approval, but also the way he said it, don't half-ass it, was like, oh, if you're going to do it, you better go do it. So I was, I, I was lit from there and uh, went to film school. So after film school, of course, you, you made that move to to Hollywood. And there's a great bit where you describe what any actor will recognize, which is the desperation to, to find work. Yes. And um, the, the producer, Don Phillips, has to have a word with you where he sort of says, look, this town smells that kind of desperation. And he tells you to literally to go, to go and do something else because... Yes. You cannot focus. You cannot get work if you are so focused on getting the work. You know, you need to have something else going on. And it seems to me that you've often had this ability to to have other things going on in your life that are as important as the acting that you're doing in order to have some kind of that some kind of focus. But of course, you needed that big break and a Time to Kill. I suppose was the film that really helped you to to mount the career that you now have. But again, it was about dropping the script in that screen yeah. test that helped you to get that job. Could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so Time to Kill, directed by Jill Schumacher. Um, I originally was offered the role of Freddie Lee Cobb, which Kiefer Sutherland ended up playing. And I went to go meet uh, with Jill Schumacher on the, on the Warner Brothers lot about that role. And I had read the script and I had read the book. And Freddie Lee Cobb was a good role. It was a colorful role. But the role I really wanted was that of the lead, Jake Brigance. And I had this in mind. And so I planned on telling him this in our meeting, but I didn't know when <laughs> I was going to do We're in this meeting. We're talking about Freddie Lee Cobb. Great. You're going to be great at this. This will be good. Yes, yes, yes. At the end of the meeting, I remember I was sitting back. I had a sleeveless John Mellencamp t-shirt on and I was smoking a cigarette. And I remember going, so uh, Mr. Schumacher, who's playing the role of Jake Begans? And he goes, I don't know. Who do you think should? And I remember I, I was nervous. I took a nice inhale and on the exhale, looked him right in the eye and I said, I think I should. And he started laughing, threw his hands up in the air, goes, oh, that's a great idea, but it's never going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, it's a lead role in a major studio movie. You're not really a name. Uh, you can't green light the movie, but great idea. But sorry, it's never going to happen. I knew then when I left that meeting, I had planted the seed and then some things went my way. Um, Sandra Bullock was already cast as Roark, the number three role, the third lead in the movie. And after she was already cast, she had a movie come out called While You Were Sleeping, which opened to a really good weekend and made a, went on to make a bunch of money. So all of a sudden her star sort of rose and she was able to green light movies on her own. Um, there's, uh, another reason that, uh, my friend Woody Harrelson was not cast in the role. I was told there was another reason Kevin Costner was not cast in the role. Anyway, it was Everyone else was cast except the lead. And Joel Schumacher got approval from the studio to give me a screen test for the lead. And the studio agreed to that and acquiesced because now they sort of had enough uh, green light power already cast in the movie. Mm. And I went to that screen test. It was on Mother's Day. And I remember Joel saying, we'll do it on, it's a little, little studio on Fairfax. Uh, it'll be really quiet. No one will know about it because even if you do great, I remember him saying this, even if you do great, it's still such a long shot that you'll get the role. I don't want it to be on your resume that you tried for the role and didn't get it. So I went and I was prepared. It was the final summation in Time to Kill. 
And I went in and there was a full crew and a jury and a full set. And I, I did the summation. And I remember after the first take, I did it. And I, was, I remember even in my head saying, okay, that was good. No magic happened. You hit all the beats. You remembered all the words. And then I remember Joel Schumacher going, now throw down the script. Matthew, do and say what you would do. So all of a sudden I threw out the idea of being a lawyer and I went through a rift for about eight minutes to a jury about what happened if their daughter was raped and went, I said things that, that, that you couldn't say in a courtroom. I, mm -hmm. I cussed, I spit, I was, I was, you know, it was, it was, it was a very, uh, I painted a very, very horrific picture. And I, and I, and I, I really broke a sweat <laughs> and <laughs> was, was groveling and crying and so just seething with anger. And all of a sudden Joe goes, cut. And he goes, great. That was it. And that was it. It was a couple of takes. And so the next thing I knew, I get a call from Jill Schumacher and uh, John Grisham. And I was on the set of John Sales, uh, uh, Lone Star down in Piedras Snickers, Texas. It was about midnight. He said, do you want to take for Gantz? And I said, hell yeah, I do. And I, and I got the roll. <laughs> It's an incredible story. And it's just, it's so interesting how these little things can make all the difference. And of course, made a huge difference to your career. But you, you're very honest about the fact that after that big film, that big success, you did feel slightly lost. You had that sort of feeling of not knowing quite what to do. And I'm always trying to break new ground with this podcast, but this is definitely going to be the first time that I talk to an author about a wet dream because you talk very honestly about this extraordinary dream that you had yeah. and, and how you acted on it. And it, it literally took you to a different part of the world. Not many actors would do that, but again, this is part of your spirit about sort of following, I guess this is part of following what green lights are, isn't it? It's about sort of seeing the opportunity somewhere, but could you tell us a little bit about how you yeah. ended up in South America? The green lights come in many forms and, and <laughs> And sometimes they come in celestial suggestions that are handed you via a story from a wet dream. And that's how <laughs> one of mine came in. And, and uh, it was a, it was the second time I had had this dream. This dream, I remember I'd had it years before, but didn't do anything with it because I'd only had it once. But it was 11 frames, like picture frames, like a rolling frame, one frame picture, two, three, four, 11 frames, 11 seconds. And it was me floating on my back, naked down the Amazon River. I was wrapped up in anacondas and pythons. There were freshwater sharks all around me, crocodiles, piranhas. And I was floating on my back and I was very, very calm. I was not fighting. It was, it was, it was a peaceful dream is what was odd about it because all the elements of the dream are that of a nightmare, but it was very peaceful. And as I'm floating on my back on the left bank, of the Amazon. There's a big rock ridge about 100 feet high. And from just to the left of me, just to the left of me, all the way down past the horizon, it was lined with African tribesmen with shields and spears and bows and arrows. And 11 frames, 11 seconds, then I came and I woke up. And this being the second time I had that dream, I go, whoa. Uh, and it was exactly the same dream. Exactly the same amount of images, same amount of time as I'd had a few years ago. I said, okay, this is a sign. This is, you know, God or something that is trying to tell me something. So I said, what are the two things I know in the dream? So I, now I become a, a pri private eye in my own, trying to dissect <laughs> my own wet dream, right? And there were two things I knew. It was on the Amazon River, and those were African tribesmen on the ridge. So 
I quickly go to the Atlas, open up to the continent of Africa and start looking for the Amazon River. Well, as you know, you can look for the rest of your life for the Amazon <laughs> River, continent of Africa and not find it. I was in the wrong continent. But that's how dreams go. I call a buddy. I ask him, where the hell is the Amazon? He goes, wrong continent, buddy. I then go to South America, find it. And that's when I said, okay, this is my first, I got to chase down the first half of this dream. So I packed up a backpack, got a one-way ticket to uh, um, South America, landed in Lima, um, Cusco, and then hiked and went on a 22-day sort of walkabout, and I made it to that Amazon River. Yeah, not many people would would be brave enough to literally go to a different part of the world, especially on something which feels sort of, as you say, you're just sort of following something that's in a dream. But you discovered lots of things on that journey, didn't you, about yourself, about Uh, other people? Yes, and I mean... uh, you know, I, I write extensively about the section, the Peru trip. And then obviously there's the next, I had the dream again, which is another conversation, which I chased the second half of that dream later in my life. But I needed, I was looking for, remember, I just got quite famous after Time to Kill. And I was looking for an adventure, a solo adventure. I had, I, I, the world had all of a sudden become a mirror for me. I was not meeting strangers anymore. All of a sudden where, you know, uh, the weekend before Time to Kill, I would have done any any work, any script, and all of a sudden Time to Kill opens well, and now every script's being offered me. I'm like, whoa, I need more than 24 hours in a day, and that seems to be all they're given. Um, I needed, I did, couldn't really feel my feet on the ground with all of mm-hmm. the options that were now thrown in front of me. And I was looking for a Fugamundi, as my brother Christian at the monastery calls it, a walkabout. I was looking mm-hmm. for a walkabout, needed to go someplace in solitude where I could he- let my memories catch up, feel some demarcations between the events of the day, let myself settle and really hear, listen to myself about how I felt about things um, inside. And so that dream came and I was like, that's it. <laughs> I'm heading there. Um, so I was looking for a reason to get away and I did. And I learned incredible uh, uh, lessons on that trip and wrote, wrote about them, many of which are shared in this journal. Um, and then returned with a new perspective. And as you say, I've had many recalibrations and recalibrations um, through my 50 years that have been uh, quite adventurous. I wanted to return to your father, if we could, because he's such a strong presence in, in the book and obviously such a huge influence on your life. A, a, an incredible man. You just sort of describe him as, as an Old Testament man. Um, obviously, he, he had quite a tempestuous marriage with your mother. They were married three times, divorced twice. Uh, they kept sort of, they kept sort of, yeah, to each other. So they sort of kept going apart and coming back together again. Um, yeah. And you describe sort of the, the relationship that you had with him and with your brothers had with him as well, because he sort of had this thing where he would almost part of your growing up was that you had to almost assume some of his role in the family. There's almost a fight, like an alpha male fight that has to happen for you to fully Indeed. grow up. Is that a good way of describing it? It's quite an odd, odd way to sort of describe it. Does that make sense? Well, it, it, it was, he had three boys, right? And he's, he's from a, from another generation, but just if you have three males, there's all, there's right of passage. There are rituals. Mm rites of passage. And I would say he's more Old Testament, almost tribal in certain ways. Um, and he, you know, we, he had rules and he raised us with great values. And if you were ready to challenge one of those values, he let you know, you know where to find me. Now, um, my older brother, Rooster, took him up on that challenge earlier than I did. Um, I had my chances to take him up on that challenge, but, but, but basically wimped out and, and was too, too afraid to take him up on it. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then I finally had my rite of passage with him in a story that I tell in the book when I, uh, I jumped on and, and, and beat up a bouncer that had put his hand on my dad. Um, and that was a rite of passage. I mean, you know, families, not just mine, but families and, 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 and the world we live in, business, uh, capitalist societies. It's like you, you make laws and governments make rules. Families have rules. But they're kind of waiting for you. And I know my dad was waiting for me, each one of his sons to go. He loved the day. He was waiting for the day for us to go. Nope, <laughs> not doing it, dad. I'm standing up for myself. I'm going my own way. And he was like, oh, his eyes would light up like, here we go. And <laughs> physical encounter that would end with him in tears and us hugging and him going, that's my boy. That's my boy. And there was great lessons in that. And the world does that. I mean, the world sets up rules and then all of a sudden a Steve Jobs comes along and goes their own path. And then as soon as they, if you mean it, if you committed to your own path, that is not the the mean, that is not what the major, the way the majority goes about things. If you succeed at it, the, the, the powers that be pat you on the back and say, way to go. You pulled it off. But there's an initiation to do it. So he wanted his sons there was an initiation to to get to get our to grow into being men and out of out of boys with him you know your your love and respect for him is really clear in the book but also you you do say that the one thing that you've always known that you wanted to be yourself is a father yep. and you you're a father three times over now and i just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about why fatherhood is is so important to you and what it yeah. means now to have kids of your own well let me tell you what it meant to me and why it came to me so early at eight years old. I knew that I wanted to be a father and here's what it was. I, I, my dad was big on the sirs and the ma'ams. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Mm. And all of his, you know, friends that I would meet as I'm eight years old, looking up to them, giving them a good firm handshake and saying, yes, sir. And no, sir. The one consistency in my eight year old mind the reason I was giving them respect and reverence because they were all fathers. They had children. And I was like, oh, that's it. That's when you've made it as a man, when you become a father. So however much that was exactly true, that was my romantic version of that at eight years old. And it was very clear to me. Oh, you can do whatever you want in life, but I know one thing I want to do, the greatest job in the world, the greatest privilege in the world, the greatest freedom in the world, the greatest responsibility in the world, that's being a dad, being a father. So that stuck with me. That never wavered through my life. And even before, you know, I knew, before I found Camilla, the the, the woman for me in this life, I still knew I wanted to be a father. I wondered how that was going to go down. I didn't, I wanted to to find the woman I love to get married and have children, but I didn't know if, if I was going to go through life and, and, and not find, not get married, not find the woman, but still maybe father. Um, fortunately I did find the woman and, and have fathered still, but it, it, you know, and now I've become a, now I've become a father and you, and you go, okay, now I realize that's how we become immortal. <laughs> We're immortal. I, I will live, if I move on, the, the, my, my, my children keep me alive in the same way that just keep living is me keeping my father alive, living his values out is keeping him alive. My children will keep me alive. And then hopefully they have children 
and we'll keep them alive. So the extension, the the the, line, the lineage of the, the 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 compound assets of the future of staying alive and staying immortal forever are now realized. Um, and then, like any 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 parent, you know, what am I learning now? My kids are twelve, ten, and seven. I'm learning that. It's a lot more about DNA than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know the other thing that I that I that I I I think we all need to be reminded of that I've learned as being a father is that to bear a child with a woman is to 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 make a child with a woman, and it does not mean oh now you're a father. I mean technically it does, hmm. but being a father is a verb. I mean, it, it, it's the work we do for, for, you know, I don't know what it is there, but over, over, over here, over here, my family is sort of, you raise your kids till they're 18, then they move on independently. And if they haven't learned it, they're not going to learn it yet, but they go off on their own. So mm-hmm. for at least 18 years, fatherhood is a verb. It's work. It's, it's great. It's awesome work. It's hard work. As you know, <laughs> saying no to things is a hell of a lot harder than saying yes. Um, but as we shepherd our children, that, that that's when we need to remind ourselves as as um, biological fathers that being a father is 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 it is at least an eighteen, if not a lifetime job after you have a child. My time with you is coming to an end, unfortunately, Matthew. But I was intrigued to to notice at one point in the book that you're described as being a talented whistler. Yeah, and uh, I wondered if you wanted to maybe take us out of this podcast. As he whistles us to a close, just time to say that our next episode brings together nurse Christy Watson and writer Madeline Bunting to talk about care, something that has been thrust into the spotlight by the current pandemic, but which will remain one of the most important issues in our future. Join us next week. <laughs> Matthew, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. Thank you for green lights, um, and you know, thank you so much for your time. It's just been great. Absolutely, well, I enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs>